Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 312, and today's guest is Ben McKean, founder and CEO of Hungry Root. Okay, from a personal note, I don't mind shopping for groceries, but my problem is that I'm a creature of habit and I tend to purchase the same things over and over again. Plus, I am terrible about meal planning, so after doing a full shop, there is still nothing to eat. I guess I'm not the only one, as Ben and I discuss. On average, consumers spend two to three hours a week grocery shopping. 75% of what we buy at the grocery store are the same items as the week before, and 20 to 30% of what is purchased at the grocery store is thrown away and wasted. Sounds terrible. So what if you could have a service that cuts that shopping time down to two to three minutes a week, plans the meals for you, creates the list of ingredients that is only 10% of what you purchased the week before, and delivers it to your home? Sounds dreamy, right? Well, say hello to Hungry Root. Hungry Root is the only grocery and recipe delivery service designed to make healthy eating easy, personal, and sustainable. The company is profitable with revenues of $182 million for the first six months of this year, all while building a, relatively speaking, capital-efficient business. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Ben's background story and how entrepreneurship was part of his DNA from an early age, including starting a company at 18 years old that was ultimately acquired, the details about Savored, which helped restaurants book empty tables using dynamic pricing, which was acquired by Groupon, the full story about Hungry Root, which evolved from selling its own line of food products, and how they pivoted to a grocery service and using AI at its core since 2019, his latest entrepreneurial side project called Every, which is an app focused on enhancing human experiences and fostering deeper connections amongst individuals, advice on creating and scaling a consumer business, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at $0 a month that's free, plus you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code Fizz20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ben. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Keith. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you because we got a lot, a lot to cover here as far as your entrepreneurial journey, building great companies. Um, but before we get into that, I did want to talk about you know, when I look at someone like yourself, who's, you know, founder, CEO of a high growth company, and you've got your hands in lots of different things. And I would imagine you get uh, probably asked to do a lot of speaking at conferences. And, you know, in the fall, it's conference season. So it's good for visibility, good for the company. Yet, it must be tough to kind of pick and choose because there's that time that's allocated to doing it. You got to go there if it's, you know, in Vegas or somewhere else, like there's the time away from the business. So how do you juggle that? How do you decide which, com which conferences make sense based on the trade-off of not having your, you know, your eyes on the business at that point in time? It's an interesting question. I, uh, some of the times I do it, you know, for fun and it's great to get out there and meet people and, and sort of just tell the story. Uh, you know, other times there's a more specific purpose. So one of the conferences I did last month was a grocery shop where there's uh, 5,000 attendees and it's sort of the 
uh, industry leading conference for our industry. And that felt important to, you know, um, build some brand awareness around hunger and what we're doing. Uh, the talk was on the future of AI in grocery. And so it also felt like a uniquely interesting topic to be able to represent uh, the industry in. Yeah. So I mean, I would imagine that visibility and to talk about something that everyone's probably wondering, how is AI going to affect our industry and be the thought leader up there just is, you know, pays off in multiple ways. Yeah. I've found that it very rarely pays off immediately. You know, it's not yeah. like you come back from a conference and all of a sudden there's all of these, you know, <laughs> connections that then lead to, you know, business impact, but it does just, I think it's a data point for people. You're on people's radars and, and, you know, things come, end up coming back over time and, and resulting in interesting partnerships over time. Yeah. No, it's all about building your network and having that exposure out there. All right. Well, let's talk about your background story. So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? I grew up outside of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and um, I'm the youngest of three boys. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I do get asked the question sort of, I've, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life and I, and, and, and I, you know, get asked the question sort of, you know, why and what might have formed that. And, and one of the things I point to is I very clearly remember having this dream when I was about uh, eight or nine years old about starting a candy store in the, in the sort of the downtown of my, you know, where I grew up. And um, my grandfather was an entrepreneur and he had a, uh, about 12, uh, they were called ice cream parlors. This was in the seventies and it's called Bailey's of Boston. And um, they had, you know, ice cream, they had chocolates, it was sort of a candy, you know, ice cream candy store. My mom worked there as a kid and she rolled the chocolates. And so I remember hearing all these stories about that. There's this really cool picture, sort of um, anim animation of um, or illustration of the store. And it had us like dogs eating ice cream and that was in our home. So like it was a part of sort of growing up was hearing about Bailey's. Uh, and that was probably ingrained in me, you know, I'm sure that was part of why I had this dream, but like, I, I always just thought that was really interesting. I never did kind of a lemonade stand or anything like that, but, um, you know, I always like, um, I was kind of the typical third child where, um, I was left on my own a decent amount. So I would sort of like make up games and, um, and, and I definitely sort of had a creative energy as a kid. And then, but my first real entrepreneurial venture was when I was 18. And that was more just, I didn't want to get a normal, a typical job <laughs> during the summer. So, you know, uh, it, I was graduating high school and, you know, I had to get a job. And um, what was, you know, what my parents were sort of recommending, which my older brothers had done was to, you know, work at like a law firm or work at like a, you know, investment management firm as, as just sort of like an intern. And that sounded really horrible to me. Um, and so, but I had to do something. So I put flyers in people's mailboxes and at the top of the flyer it, it, in, in big letters, it said cheap summer help. And then it listed like mulching, painting, you know, moving, like pretty much, you know, anything that I was willing to do. And then it listed uh, my parents' phone number, uh, like the home phone number. And, um, and I just got tons of phone calls. And so then, um, then I started realizing that actually I needed to hire people to help out. 
I also realized I needed to get a new phone number because my parents were, you know, were not cool with, uh, you know, getting <laughs> phone calls all day um, from yeah. random, you know, strangers in the neighborhood. And so I started hiring people. And um, that was the birth of my first company. And that really shaped just my love of entrepreneurship because I did that for four years. It grew into a really real business. We had about 55 workers in my fourth wow. year. Yeah, we did. And in, in, in the summer, we did um, over 400,000 of revenue and over 20,000 of profit. Uh, and that is amazing. <laughs> it was really pretty cool. It was, uh, it was, a, I'd set it up to be a managerial structure. So there were five managers who each oversaw 10 workers uh, and each oversaw essentially two towns. So we were in Middlesex County, Massachusetts, and um, our, our, you know, our radius was about 12 towns. And every job, we would put a sign in the front yard that would say cheapsummerhelp.com. That's all it would say. And this was 2004 to 2007. And people would drive by and they'd go to cheapsummerhelp.com. And then they'd, they'd great, call Great up. URL. Great domain. Great URL. I actually haven't checked it in a while. I wonder what it is now. But um, And it just worked. And it was, it was fun. Like it was really, it, was, it, it worked. It was profitable, you know, there was none, you know, um, and it was fun. So I really fell in love with entrepreneurship through that. That's awesome. So uh, you studied at Georgetown, you were a pitcher there. So you were obviously a D1 athlete. Um, what's, uh, so after school, you did the investment banking thing for, for a stretch. Mm -hmm. What, what triggered you to say, okay, you know, entrepreneurship, let me do this again. Yeah, well, and actually, it's funny because you mentioned the pitching. I, I also do think, um, you know, I, I I think I was obsessed with pitching growing up, and and I actually do think that uh, that experience shaped me as an entrepreneur as well. Because as a pitcher, you're on the mound, you know, the entire sort of like you're a leader on the field. You're uh, like I, I I felt comfortable sort of in that position growing up, and I and I do think that that actually probably did shape sort of my 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 comfort level in in leading teams. Um, I wasn't a great college pitcher, but just, like, my memories of pitching are all from sort of younger younger periods. But uh, to your question around sort of you know going into finance after, so when I with cheap summer help. Um, I ended up selling it for twenty thousand uh, dollars. My uh, and to wait when? When did you sell it? So that was two thousand seven. And um, and I, but I very seriously considered franchising because it really like it, it. It was working. Like it was um, people, you know, customers loved it, and and it was it was really working. So I considered seriously franchising, and I looked at. I don't know if they're still around, but college pro painters. Yeah, college pro painters, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of like um a similar model, but franchising is really complicated and actually pretty high risk. So uh I decided not to do that. And 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 uh and then my brothers who had both gone into finance after college, they were like, you know, uh learn like real business is is sort of you know how it was phrased and and like big business and so I, I i went to merrill and was in their investment banking group for a year but the whole time i was there i was thinking i really want to start something again and i was keeping my eye, eye out for opportunities um and i saw an opportunity so this was 2009 uh in the restaurant industry um because open table had just gone public 
uh, Merrill was um, uh, one of the book runners on their IPO. And uh, I wasn't the analyst on the deal, but I was in the tech group. And so I was, I was, I was able to really understand their business well. And, um, uh, and it felt like this really big opportunity to create uh, dynamic pricing in restaurants. So, you know, take Expedia, Priceline, Orbitz, and how they adjust prices for hotels and airlines, depending on where you go. That concept still doesn't actually really exist today, and it certainly didn't exist back then. And so that was the concept that I, I left Merrill to start uh, Savored, which was uh, in 2009. Okay, so let's talk about, so originally it was called Village Vines, right? Yeah. Yeah, so so it was called Village Vines initially. So except for the first entrepreneurial experience where the business just sort of manifested in many ways. What I've found with every other entrepreneurial experience I've had is the initial idea changes dramatically, just like dramatically. So the initial idea when I left uh, uh, Merrill was actually still tied to the business I had in college and bringing that concept online. So essentially it was TaskRabbit. TaskRabbit where you book local services, you know, landscaping, painting, moving, you book it online, you have someone come up and show and, and do the work. That's essentially what Cheap Summer Help was. Uh, Cheap Summer Help just what was was off offline. Instead of using an app, you would call, you know, you called up my 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 parents' home. And that was the initial concept. TaskRabbit launched about three weeks after I quit my job. And I realized like it's a that's a really complicated task to build that business and now there was someone who was actually building that specific business in fact i remember someone i i had written like a 30 page business plan and i shared it with a couple of friends and one of my friends who had seen the business plan was like oh man i'm sorry you know task rabbit just launched like have you seen this they just launched mm -hmm. and um so i pretty quickly realized i didn't want to do that and task, I task rabbit started in boston originally too yeah, 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 yeah. And um, and it's funny. This is bringing me all the way back there because I don't know what what's happened, TaskRabbit, but uh, I know there's been other companies. They were acquired by IKEA. Oh wow, interesting. Yeah, I had heard that. Very interesting. Um, and now there's Angie, which you know, similar kind of space. So that you know, local services is interesting. Um, so my mindset was in local services and, and my mindset was also in restaurants, given the open table experience I'd had. So that's when I very quickly pivoted sort of into, we can't do all local services, but this idea of booking services online is really interesting to me and booking tables at restaurants is really interesting. And that's what, that's what made the pivot into uh, uh, dynamic book, booking discounted reservations, depending on when you go to the restaurant. Well, so originally it was like you spend ten dollars and you would get thirty percent off your bill. Yes, exactly. So by by booking a reservation at an off peak hour. Right, right. So this is a novel idea at the time. So how how did you get restaurants to be like, okay, we have open tables? Yeah, this is a no brainer. Then how did you build the consumer side? Like, it's a you know obviously a double sided marketplace. Yeah, so I had a great co-founder who focused primarily on the consumer side, and I focused primarily on the restaurant side to start. That evolved over time, but um, uh, I hit the ground running in New York City, walking into restaurants. Uh, I mean, that was um, 
a very challenging time of my entrepreneurial journey. Like I would walk into restaurants, sit at the bar, you know, this is like typically around lunchtime. So I, I you know, most of the time I, I wasn't ordering a beer or anything. I was just sitting at, you know, I sit at the bar, kind of wait for the general manager. Half of the time, at least the general manager is like, I don't want anything to do with you, you know, get out. And then, you know, you talk to a couple and like, um, I mean, I remember so many times leaving around two o'clock and being like, I need to go take a nap <laughs> because exhausting. I've just struck out like, and I can't strike out anymore today. Like I just need to kind of like reset. Uh, so it was a major grind, but then I feel like just like anything else in sales, we got a couple big names and it just made everything so much, you know, confidence went up. Like you referenced the other restaurants that are, that are using it. And then we really started to build a brand. Um, it, especially in New York city where we had, I mean, we had most of the good restaurants in New York city on the platform. And so it became very easy to sign up the, you know, the rest at that point. Very cool. So then, yeah, you evolved to that dynamic discount model and raise some capital, right? Yep. Uh, and then you started to expand into other markets. So that's really hard to do too. It's one thing to have your own backyard which is obviously massive of new york city yet to expand into other markets is really really hard to do yeah so we ended up expanding into 10 markets the 10 largest u.s uh, cities uh we we were so we made all the wrong decisions in many ways so we were you know i, I think i was 24 when i started the company and and you know nothing about people in their young you know mid-20s but like you you uh you do have a different mindset. So when we launched DC, we threw this big party, you know, this big launch party. Uh, and we, we hired really aggressively. Like we hired, we hired a lot of salespeople across all these cities locally in the cities. And, um, and we were, we were growing really quickly, but we were growing very unprofitably. And, um, but yeah, to your question about local local expansion, I mean, we we the biggest market we had was New York City, where we had I think about six hundred restaurants at our peak, and Open Table had I think about fifteen hundred. So you could really use Saver to book most restaurants in New York City, and the inventory was more limited than Open Table, but you get thirty percent off by 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 booking our service, and so that fueled the consumer growth um, because it was a pretty compelling. Uh, user experience. All right. So what led to the point of uh, the acquisition by Groupon? Well, so we grew really quickly in totally the wrong metric in retrospect. So the, our primary metric was gross transaction volume, which was how much, how much dollars are our customers that are booking through Sabred spending at the restaurants? And the reason we focused on that was because if you think about Seamless, uh, Seamless Web, which is now Grubhub, that's the metric that they focused on, you know, gross transaction volume. How much are your customers buying from your restaurants? And then it's, well, what's your take rate? What percentage of that can you, can you take as revenue for your business? And Grubhub uh, and Seamless at the time were about 12 to 13% take rate. And we were, I think, like two and a half or three percent. But our whole point was we're just going to build gross transaction volume as big as possible. And then we'll bring take rate up over time. 
So within about 18 months, our customers were spending $40 million a year at our restaurants. But our take rate was like two to 3%. So our, our revenue was, I think, three or $4 million. And our cost base was a lot more than that. You know, it, uh, we, we never raised that much money. I think we raised seven or 8 million total. So it's not like we blew through a ton of cash, but we were, we were not operating this like it was 2023 where profitability matters and unit economics matter. And so what happened was um, when Groupon went public, uh, we, 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 we were able to raise money on the core local thesis that local is huge. And we were building a business in a, in a, in an, in attractive, uh, category within local Groupon went public and they didn't do well. And so when they stopped doing well, that whole thesis went away and we realized our ability to raise additional capital was, was going away. So all of a sudden we said, we really need to focus on profitability. And it was really painful. I mean, we cut, we went from about 55 employees down to, I think 17, roughly 17 at our acquisition. Uh, and, and we weren't able to get profitable even with that. Um, fortunately, Groupon came in and they really valued the high-end relationship, the high-end restaurant relationships we had built and the brand we had built, and also the technology and the experience of a discount automatically applied to your bill through a reservation. That was very different uh, than you know the core daily deal product. So Groupon came in and they acquired us, um, but that was, a, that was a lesson of how, how much luck is involved because if they hadn't acquired us, uh, you know, we probably would have had to shut down. Yeah. And well, then you like, what was that like once you were like part of Groupon? That was actually a fantastic experience. I was there about two years. It was um, part of what made it a, a, a fantastic experience was also just, you know, luck of timing. But um, group, so uh, this was 2012, September 2012 is when we sold. Right around this time, uh, uh, Google Gmail introduced the uh, three tab uh, experience in Gmail. So previously, this feels so long ago at this point, you know, I guess it was 12 years ago, but it used to be if you got a, uh, an email from Groupon, it would go in your inbox alongside the email from your wife or your friend. There was no distinction, you know, of the emails. And then Gmail introduced your primary inbox, your promotions inbox, and your, and your social. And uh, Groupon went into, you know, promotions. And um, uh, 95% of Groupon's revenue was directly from people getting the daily email, clicking on it, and then buying. So that really hurt Groupon. Mm -hmm. And it, it also led to a shift where there was this notion of we're, we're so reliant on push marketing, where we're going to push an email to you you're, and you're going to buy. And we have to shift to pull marketing uh, hey, let's go out to dinner on Friday night. Oh, let's go to Sabred to book a reservation. So Sabred was actually one of the few properties and, and sort of user experiences that was pull, it was truly pull marketing. We, we, wouldn't, we weren't reliant on sending emails to people to get people to book reservations. We were reliant on people knowing about our brand 
And then when they thought to make a reservation, they would say, oh, well, we'll go to Sabre to make the reservation. So a, one of the most important strategic pillars for Groupon, and I think this was 2013, was to uh, implement uh, Sabre's technology across the daily deal product. And to um, they, it was called G3. Uh, G1 was the initial daily deal, a single deal in your inbox. G2 was the marketplace of deals. And G3 was you would book a reservation at a restaurant or an appointment at a spa. Uh, you know, there was a booking engine. And because you're booking a specific time, it's it's uh, yield management at that point. So, you know, you're getting a certain discount, but it's it's uh, excess inventory for uh, the, the uh, supplier, the, the, the local business. And so leveraging Sabre's technology became a core part of actually Groupon's overall strategy. Uh, so that was really exciting. And, um, and I played an integral role in that. So um, it ended up being a fun, fun time there. Yeah, it's great to hear that, you know, sometimes these acquisitions, they flourish and you're a key part of the strategy that was promised upon acquisition. And then sometimes it's like, yeah, it didn't quite work out as planned and it, they ended up just sunsetting our product and or the, or the uh, Silicon Valley HBO where you're just the found, the acquired founders are on the roof waiting for their yeah. time to expire. <laughs> yeah, they did sunset our brand after about a year or two, sure. um, yeah. but they folded it into Groupon Reserve. So they launched this uh, new sort of platform called Groupon Reserve, which I led which was the premium business of Groupon and where you would book a reservation. Uh, and the plan was to then move it into uh, uh, spas and you'd book an appointment at a spa. Um, uh, so the sort of the technology and the user experience lived on, but the brand was uh, was folded up and folded in. All right, let's talk about Hungry Roots. So how'd you come up with the idea behind the company and get that started? Well, so... Uh, so after I, so I'd say about the first 18 year to 18 months at Groupon was really focused on, on leading Groupon Reserve and sort of this G3 initiative. So I was very focused there, but I knew I wanted to start another company. And I also was getting close to getting married. And I knew I wanted to start another company before having kids, because I know how challenging those first couple of years are. And uh, so I, I started thinking about new ideas, but this time I, I really wanted to come up with sort of a philosophy um, to help guide me towards a specific business idea to, to, to focus on. And the philosophy that I came up with was that you can think about business opportunities on a spectrum from, from sort of inherently transactional in nature to uh, inherently emotional in nature, in terms of the relationship that the customer has with the brand. And so if you think about transactional in nature, so open table, I would consider a transactional relationship. If if your relationship, your, your emotional relationship with uh, when you book open table is actually with the restaurant. Uh, you know, you go to the restaurant and if it's an anniversary dinner or they do something special for you or you just love the food and the experience, like you can develop an emotional relationship with that restaurant. You're not really thinking, oh, open tables like, you know, you're not deeply attached to open table in an emotional way. It's a transactional relationship. Emotional relationships, food 
is is one of the most emotional uh, relationships that people have. Um, food impacts us chemically in terms of how we feel. It impacts us psychologically in terms of how we feel. But you know, feel uh, regret from what I ate last night, or 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 pride that I'm you know sticking to sort of a healthy uh, diet. So people's relationship with food is deeply emotional. There's other emotional categories as well. I think health, uh, you know, health is uh, healthcare is is obviously a very emotional relationship that people have. Um, even fashion, you know, the the uh, the clothes we wear sort of makes us feel a certain way. Um, but food, to me, is a uniquely uh, emotional relationship that people have. And yet, if you think about the brands in food, they actually don't develop emotional relationships with their customers. And the reason for that is that the vast majority of food brands are sold in grocery stores where you're buying from the grocery store, you're not buying from the brand. And so, uh, you know, you don't like develop this direct relationship with the brand that's emotional. And that to me, and it and is still today, the core thesis of the opportunity at Hunger is when you help people feel their best through food, they are deeply attached to your brand. And, and that's what we do at Hungry. So when I, when I first started it in 2015, I thought of it as a food product company. Um, we were actually, we were creating new innovative food products and selling them online. So I, I sort of, I thought of it as like the all birds of food uh, or um, like the new age General Mills or the, you know, the new age Kraft Heinz. Um, and so we created six products that were a essentially a fresh healthy version of a frozen dinner like it, it was a, it was a package that was about the same size as a frozen dinner it had uh fresh cut vegetable noodles with sauces and and proteins you'd put in a saute pan mix it around for uh five minutes and you'd have and you'd have a, a meal and that was our initial product so it was like a really unique innovative product on the market and we sold it online so we had that direct relationship with our customer what we found, and, and that was the business for the first four years. We we um, we kept launching these new products. We launched these cookie doughs that are uh, made out of legumes. So there's a ch uh, blended chickpeas with almond butter and chocolate chips, and that's like a our almond chickpea cookie dough. And it's actually like the best cookie dough you'll ever have. It's it's fantastic, but it's a really unique, innovative product. You're not you're not finding it anywhere else. We created these sauces that are these clean ingredient, interesting sauces. And that's what we were selling online. And um, we built it to 60 SKUs by 2019. And we got to 25 million of revenue. Uh, but we weren't growing at the rate we wanted. And we were unprofitable. And the conclusion we came to was you can develop the most interesting, best food products. But it's always going to be more convenient for people to buy them alongside the rest of their groceries. So we got a lot of like... I love your, you know, veggie noodle meals, or I love your cookie dough. When can I start to buy them at Whole Foods? And it was like, well, the whole point is that we want to develop this direct relationship. So like buy them from hungry.com. And so what we realized in 2019 was we had to pivot the business and we pivoted the business into being a grocery service because we realized the most convenient way for people to buy our products was going to be to buy them alongside the rest of their groceries. 
And so we added, you know, Bonza, Kite Hill, we started adding all these other brands to our platform. And that's when we pivoted into AI. Because when you are selling groceries online, you have to, you know, there's a lot of ways of buying your groceries. So part of the way that we built it to be highly unique was that we built it so customers would trust us to actually choose their groceries and choose recipes for them for their week. And that, and the way that we choose them for the customer is through this algorithm that we, that we started developing in 2019. Which, which just makes a world of sense. So, uh, you know, my wife and I, we, we juggle the grocery shopping one week, I'll do it the next week. She'll do it, you know, just kind of whatever, whoever's got the time and it's so monotonous. Like, like come home with the same stuff and like, what do you want for dinner? You're like, I don't know. What'd you buy? I don't like, well, I don't know. Like same stuff. Like, it's just like boring where what you're doing is just like it's you know here's what it is here's the groceries that are going to arrive it's just i'm like oh my god it's it just makes a world of sense grocery shopping is a surprisingly um challenging task that humans are really bad at and there's a couple stats <laughs> to show that. so one stat you touched on this 75 percent of what we buy at the grocery store is the exact same items from the week before. Thousand percent. <laughs> and and that's because it's actually really intimidating to choose something new that you don't know what to do with. And you don't know if you're gonna like the flavor. You don't know if the nutrition is aligned. And you don't know what to, you know, what recipe to make it in. At 110% of what customers buy from us each week are the same items from the week before. Wow. And 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 that's because they've trusted us to choose new foods for them. Um, 20 to 30% of what customers buy at the grocery store, they throw out at their home. Yep. Yep. Yes. Food waste is an enormous problem. It's enormous problem from a sustainability perspective. It's enormous problem from a cost perspective. You go and you spend a hundred dollars at whole foods. You're only actually eating $70 of that. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So having an AI that, that solves for that is really valuable. And then the last stat is, um, on average, Americans spend two to three hours a week grocery shopping. And at Hungry, they spend two to three minutes a week grocery shopping. And the reason for that is the AI has filled their cart with groceries and recipes. They've trusted us to do the work. They go in, they edit stuff, you know, they remove things that they don't actually want. They add things that they do want, but it takes them two to three minutes versus two to three hours. Sounds amazing. Like I don't mind grocery shopping, but it depends what store I'm at. And, uh, when it's, there's too many people there at the wrong time that you go and you're like, oh my God, this is going to be insane. Right. Um, but what I like about what you guys do is, uh, it's that, you know, cause I guess we could do a better job of planning, Hey, here's what we're going to eat for the week and then go buy the ingredients to use it. But I don't think that way. It's not like, I'm not that creative when it comes to recipes and food. So what you do is you tell me what to do and, and but I don't want a meal kit company either like a blue apron or something where they're just sending me stuff it's like like what your model is is just so more like impactful thank you appreciate that it's it's really resonating we have the best ret uh, customer retention in the industry we have the best unit economics in the industry both of these are so critical because in, in our category of selling food delivering food to people's homes there have been so many companies that um, have been built over the years that have actually built rel relatively large revenue businesses 
and then they shut down and they shut down because um, their customer retention is not uh, good enough to sustain the business and and their the economics on each on each delivery are not good enough. So we're really proud of um, how we've built it. We, we, we feel like we've been pretty thoughtful and methodical and uh, and the impact we're having on people's lives is, is really uh, is really special. It's, it's a, it, we've developed that emotional relationship I was speaking about. And, and that's that's at the center of what we do. So, so how did you build this operation? Cause you've got, you got to select what SKUs to have. You got to have the inventory. You got to predict what a consumer is going to buy. Like it's, it's a very complex operation, uh, you know, fulfillment, dry ice. Like it's, there's a lot to it. Relative to other companies in the category, our operation is actually very simple. And the reason for that is, um, so we purchase finished grocery items from brands in the same way that, you know, a, a typical grocery store would, a Kroger or a Publix. Um, and so these brands, uh, and, and obviously in 40 per, 40% of our revenue is our own brand. And so in that case, we're purchasing directly from the food producer, the co-packer. Um, so they deliver to our warehouses. We have three fulfillment warehouses. They deliver these finished grocery items to the warehouses. We do no food production ourselves. So food production is an incredibly complex portion of the supply chain. We don't touch that at all. That has been a major challenge for meal kits is they, they source in raw ingredients, they're chopping them up, they're portioning them. Food production is very complicated, very high risk. So we don't do any of that. Um, the, the grocery items are, are delivered to our warehouses. Our warehouses are, uh, pick and pack operations. So what that means is you have, um, uh, you have a human who stands in front of a bay of about 50 different items. It's semi-automated. So they have a box that comes up to them in a conveyor belt. The, uh, the system knows what order that is and what, what items in front of that person they need to pick. So it lights up the uh the the items that need to be picked it's all weight managed so when they take it off of the um off of the bay the light goes away when they put it into the uh into the box uh the box uh you know the weight that's added to the box it, it sort of checks off that the box can go to the next person so it's actually a very it's a semi-automated pretty streamlined pick and pack operation which reduces a lot of the complexity there and then it's delivered to customers' homes uh, in an insulated box to keep it cold with um, with with gel packs, and we leverage uh, you know FedEx, UPS, and about ten other uh, delivery partners. So our perspective is we have extremely talented leadership in in our supply chain and fulfillment operation. Our perspective is that we're we're not fundamentally doing anything drastically new. It, in our in our supply side of our business what we're doing that's actually drastically new is all on the demand side it's the customer experience and it's the experience of someone signing up and trusting us to choose their foods for the week and so there's there like a lot of the complexity is more in the user experience the brand and then the the algorithm Makes sense. So what's so what's the current state of the state of the company? Like what a, like whatever you can share. So in the first six months of this year, we did 182 million in revenue. Wow. And, and the business is profitable. 
Uh, so we're 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 growing really nicely. We've reached a pretty decent scale, and and the business is profitable. And um, and we feel like the path forward is is really similar to what's gotten us to where we are today. It's about thoughtfully expanding the items that we offer and uh, and optimizing the you know the personalization uh, part of our value proposition. And like you've raised capital, but it's not like you've gone and raised, you know, you know, 250 million growth round of capital. It's been all things considered what you've built, like pretty capital efficient, very capital efficient, raised 75 million uh, total capital, which is far less than most companies in our category. Uh, And, and a significant amount of that is, is still on our, you know, on our balance sheet. Um, it's very capital efficient. Um, and that really comes down to two things. It's, it comes back to the, the relative simplicity of the operation. I don't want, want to make it sound like our operation is you know, easy, but um, capital is required in food production. Uh, and capital is also required if you're, if you're uh, leveraging a local delivery uh, uh, fulfillment method. So if you think about a lot of companies in our category, they are actually fulfilling from either a local grocery store, you know, they, you know, walking through uh, Kroger and they're picking out items and then they're driving it to the customer's home. And in some cases they are actually even leveraging their own vehicles, tremendous capital costs there and, and tremendous sort of operational costs. And, um, and so those two elements of the, the, by cutting those two elements out of our supply chain, it's helped us to uh, reduce the need for CapEx. All right, so now you're working on a new project called Every. So what, what what's Every all about? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm squarely focused on on Hungroot, where you know I remain the CEO, and and um, but I did over the past couple of years, I started to become really interested in this new problem, and and I, and it really emerged during COVID, where. Um, there was the disconnection that people were feeling from being at home, but then there's also the, you know, um, the disconnection that people are feeling through these sort of echo chambers of social media and, um, you know, we're speaking past each other and there's political turmoil, there's social turmoil there, you know, more recently there's, you know, international, um, geopolitical turmoil. And and it, it and there's crazy stats on this. So seventy uh, percent of Americans feel that distrust uh, is hurting our society. Seventy percent, and which I feel like is actually pretty intuitive. I mean, it's talked a lot about, right? Is people uh, we don't really trust each other anymore, um, and, and we're not listening to each other. And then, and then, but the, in some ways, the more shocking statistic is that 58% of Americans feel that no one in their life knows them well. So there's this, there's this disconnection isolation that's occurring both at the societal level and then also at the individual level. And, and, and I, I, I experienced this as well. I think where I probably feel this most acutely is actually in the work environment where you know, in a work environment, there's really tough problems that need to be solved. There's tough conversations that need to be had. And I view it more as a uh, opportunity that the more that you truly are connected to someone and you truly understand how they think and how they see the world and you, you can see common ground with the person, that's the foundation of a strong working relationship. I think that's the foundation of a strong relationship in general. 
So that's the problem that I started becoming interested in solving. And when all of the generative AI tools came out at this point about a year ago, I just started playing with them because, you know, AI is really critical at Hungroot and, and uh, generative AI is, is sort of this, uh, you know, adjacent field of AI to, to, the, to our core AI. So I, I started playing with them to really understand how could we start to incorporate some of those tools. And, and there are interesting ways at Hungroot that we can incorporate them. But I started to realize that actually they could be used to help solve this problem. Uh, that I'd identified around people feeling sort of disconnected and, and talking past each other. And so um, I started training these large language models and specifically uh, ChatGPT to create these conversational games uh, that focus on a, a wide variety of topics like purpose to relationships to society to, you know, more like icebreakers and sort of fun topics. And so the AI the, the, is actually creating these thought-provoking questions, and it's providing prompts to then create uh, images that are incorporated into the questions. So essentially, like we've we've trained the AI to create these thought-provoking games, and then we've built it into into an app. And so as people play the games, it surfaces common ground with uh, between them and their connections. And so the use case is. You know, you might find that someone that you work with, you you and they uh, share a love of international travel. And that's because, you know, you played the game about travel and exploration. Now you have something to connect with that person with. You, you might be totally different from that person. You know, maybe your like political views are totally different. Maybe you're in totally different stages of your life. Maybe you're in totally different departments in your organization. Now you have something to connect with that person on. And to build a relationship with that person on it might be you know not a workplace uh, uh experience it might be you know more family something related to family and you and you and you sort of now better understand someone in your family but the games the, the point of it is in a sort of fun light-hearted way a mechanism for surfacing common ground and better understanding each other well it just seems like it's a uh you know the using AI for good and building deeper relationships. Like, yeah, there's just a lot of negativity out there where I like, I just shut myself from the news. Cause I just can't handle it. Um, it's, it's too much. Like there's nothing the positive. Like, I feel the same way. There's nothing positive. And, and that's really what this is trying to accomplish. And so the, the name of the app is every, uh, it's on the app store. It, um, the, it's the belief that's behind it, it. It's really founded on is that every person and every perspective matters. There's value. There's value to be seen, and and so um, and so. Hopefully, it does some good in the world. I have no idea where it's going to go. Uh, I just wanted to kind of put it out there, and I appreciate you asking about it. And I think that I think it can have. Um, I think it can have a positive impact. But it's it's a, but it's interesting because out of my entrepreneurial journey, you know, it's. Um, this is very different. It's a nonprofit. And, um, and I don't necessarily have like specific goals for it. I think it's more, I hope it has positive impact. I hope it grows over time. Maybe it's going to grow next year. Maybe it'll grow in three years and, um, but we'll see. Well, building a consumer oriented business is really hard. So you've, done it multiple times now so what what advice would you have for entrepreneurs that are trying to build something in you know the consumer industry 
Well, I've definitely learned that building a consumer app is actually very hard. Um, it's surprise. It, that's been one of the learnings from every is it's surprisingly hard to get someone to download an app. Um, in some ways, it's easier to build a consumer commerce company. Um, now, that being said, uh, you know, I, I one of our seed investors, Lair Hippo Ventures, which is, you know, I think, uh, the the leading consumer uh, early stage VC in, in New York City. And I'm very close with the team there. And they shared with me, they're not investing in any consumer commerce companies right now because the wow. dynamics of advertising online are just uh, prohibitive, essentially. Terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. So it's I think it's actually really tough to, to build a consumer company today. Um, if you're selling commerce online, then the advertising environment makes it really challenging. And if you're if you're going more for a consumer app, it's actually really difficult to get people to uh, um, to download it. So that's not very inspiring. Uh, I guess the advice. Um, I mean, I think the advice is in some ways the same advice I'd give any entrepreneur, which is you have to be unbelievably lean. The the worst thing I think I see entrepreneurs do, and and I even see it still sort of this mentality pop up at, at even the stage that hundred is at is this notion that like people will solve problems. Um, I just don't think that that's correct. I think you, you, you as this, as the entrepreneur, you have to solve the problem and, and you obviously should work with people to solve it collaboratively, but you can't think that, oh, I'm just going to hire this person and they're going to solve, you know, this problem. I think you have to be extremely lean. You have to be, you know, hands-on and helping to solve the most important problems you're facing or challenges you're facing and it's a grind and you got to stick with it. And, you know, hunger was a major grind for four years. Now we're, now we're, um, you know, doing quite well. And, um, and I think in launching every and getting it up to the ground, it, it's, it reminded me how much a grind it is the first, you know, year or two, and you just kind of have to stick at, stick with it, be resilient and, and, you know, keep iterating. All right. Do you have a good uh, book or podcast recommendation for entrepreneurs? That's a great question. I'll start with a book. There's um, one book that actually changed my life, and it's not necessarily specific to entrepreneurs, but is is this book called Borrowing Brilliance by David Murray. And um, it's a relatively old book. I mean, I first read it 12 or 13 years ago, but and there's one chapter in specific that I even can point to that was like what changed my mindset, which is um, around thinking about uh, uh, problems or opportunities and levels and understanding uh, sort of um, understanding what level of the problem you're actually evaluating. So the, the example they give is uh, if someone gave you the problem of you work at a car company and they said, hey, everyone is uh, losing their car keys. We need to we need to solve we need to provide a solution to people so they stop losing their car keys. Well, if you think about the problem at that level, then you might build a bigger car key, or you might you know build a big thing that flashes on your car keys. But if you think about the higher level problem of why do people even need car keys, it's to start their car. Then it opens up the potential solutions of you know let's get rid of car keys and let's you know why don't you tap in a code or, or, you know, use something else to get in the car and to start the car. And, and that really stuck with me is this notion of like, it's related to the five whys. It's um, 
when, when there's a challenge in front of you, really understand what is, what are you actually trying to solve for? The, the one other angle that I think relates to this is the whole, you know, spend 95% of your time um, coming up with a question and 5% coming up with a solution. I think it's just, it's sort of a framework for contextualizing what's in front of you. That's a great, great recommendation. I haven't heard of that book and I love, you know, cause you do get some of the same ones, like hard thing about hard things and all the, you know, the, the classics, uh, but that's one I haven't heard of yet. So. How about uh, three apps you can't live without? Obviously, Hungry Root, every, not being yeah. one of them. So, those, so two of the three right there. Uh, I mean, Spotify, I, I think Spotify is a fantastic user experience. It's really cool in terms of how they're using AI, uh, like the DJ feature. Uh, I, I think that they have done a really, really fantastic job. They're getting better too. Um, I, I mean, Spotify, I'm not, asking them to charge me more, but I just, the value yeah. I get from that app is extraordinary because I'm just like a kid in the candy store of Explorer music and their exploration has been getting way better. I used to get frustrated because it was, I listened to a podcast recently where the, whoever it is that, that's doing the AI was like, they have a method of their madness of playing similar songs that you like, that's on your playlist because they want to retain you to keep listening. But, um, I've just been noticing like they're serving me up a lot more discovery. And that's what I want Spotify to do. It's the yeah. discovery of bands I've never heard of listening to an album that was released in 99 type of thing. So yeah. Okay. Spotify. I, I, I've noticed the same thing and it's, and it's interesting kind of having some knowledge of how AI works to see, to kind of see how the algorithm is working there. I feel like one of the opportunities is going to be for the algorithm to better understand the degree of discovery that each person is looking for and and when, because there are times where I'm really looking for discovery. There's times when I'm not. Um, but I, I think that's such a, uh, such a great app. Yeah. Um, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Well, I have two young kids, a four and a half year old and a two year old. So that's pretty much, you know, what I do outside of work is, uh, yeah. is spend time with them. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through your entrepreneurial journey, Ben. Like, obviously, you've done a lot, and I'm super excited about what you're up to with Hungry Root and Every. So uh, thanks for all the, the great stories and obviously all the great advice. Thanks so much, Keith. It was, it was a pleasure. Appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.